Hello and welcome to Explore, the podcast where we talk with founders and investors around the world. I'm lucky to be welcoming today Daniel Zarik, the founder and CEO of Arrows. Arrows is a product that fits into a new category, the customer onboarding tool, which basically is an extension to the already well-known CRM, but answers the question, what's next, after selling a tech product, by providing a collaborative tool between the customer and the seller. I'm Hugo Roche, the host of Explore and the financial analyst at Microsoft. And if you want to support this show, you can give it five stars on your podcast platform as well as a follow. Your episode will be starting soon. But before that, I want to thank the sponsor of the day, OpenVC. If you're a founder looking to raise an angel round, a seed or a series A, OpenVC is for you. It's a platform where you can search through and reach out to 5,000 plus VC firms angel investors, and family offices. OpenVC also provides pitch deck analytics, AI-generated emails, and a free fundraising CRM. Most of their features are free, and over 10,000 funders have already used OpenVC for their fundraising. If you want to raise five times faster, you can upgrade to OpenVC Premium and get a 20% discount forever with the code EXPLORE. Enjoy your episode. So Daniel, thank you for coming on the show. And for those that don't know you, can you briefly introduce yourself? I barely need to. You did a great job. That was perfect. Uh, I'm Daniel. I'm the CEO of Arrows and, and one of the co-founders uh, with my, my partner, Benedict. Um, yeah, I'm a, an entrepreneur mainly. I worked at Twilio for a long time, um, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. It was a long time ago now. Went to school for design and kind of sit in the middle of a bunch of skill sets. I kind of helped lead our sales team and marketing team do a lot of work on the product side. I was a product manager at Twilio. And then, yeah, now trying to grow a company and figure that out. Then we'll get into all of the details of that company. But before getting there, let's start in, I think, 2007. And that's when you actually get to go to school for the first time in college, actually, and to study, as you said, graphic design. Um, what type of students were you at the time? That's funny. So I started actually doing music business, like like. The music, I was thinking I was going to be in the music industry. I, um, in high school, I had a record label with a friend and we, we promoted shows like for, you know, punk rock bands and hardcore bands in Kentucky and the, in the U S and I really thought I was going to do music stuff. And then I went to university and started studying it and I looked around and I was like, looking at my, my teachers and all the people I met in the industry. And I was like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. I just looked around. Like there was nobody I wanted to model my career after. And I started realizing that like a lot of them just had a lifestyle that I didn't want. And that's what made me switch to, to design. I was very, even in design, I switched, I kind of made my own program. So I took some programming classes. It was at an art university, art college. And we had a couple programming classes, like for video game design or web development. So I took whatever I could and then did design on, on top of that to kind of go eventually into the software world or internet, you know, kind of, I wanted to build things on the internet. That was really all I knew. And as a student, I, I, I milked the college for everything I could get from it. Like it was, um, one of those things where I wasn't necessarily the best student, but I was the best user of the college and the resources we had. So I ran a student group and we would, you know, a lot of people are very happy to talk to students or help students. Like, you know, if a student reached out to you or me for advice, we'd be like, hell yeah, I'd love to help you. You know, like it just, we're very, people are very giving to students. So I really utilized that. I 
I met a lot of entrepreneurs. I met one of the co-founders of Kickstarter. I, that's how I got in touch with Trulio in, in some ways. And um, I really used that to meet a lot of people around Chicago. I really didn't care about the classes so much, but I really cared about everything the university kind of enabled me to, to access. Yeah, and I can echo that actually. I went to a business school as well. And I think, you know, the classes are, let's say, the baseline for doing the work in a business school. And then everything you're building around the classes and meeting people and building projects and whatever, I think that's really where the value is more than really like sitting in a room and listening to someone. Even though, I mean, of course, it gives you the basics, but like, I feel like the projects around the school are really amazing. Exactly. And there's so many people that you meet in that time that you end up knowing later or collaborating with later or get projects from or help each other get jobs. Like it's such a great time to just, I don't know, meet people and, and then build like a foundation for doing projects later. But yeah, the classwork is hit and miss. Oh, I mean, some people were uh, roommates or like classmates with Mark Zuckerberg and these people. So like you definitely can meet, can meet some really important people for your life later on. But Probably not most people are going to roommate with Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> definitely. But you just said actually, uh, so you did study design and then you were always interested in the software world, always interested to get into the entrepreneurship type of work. And you said actually through school, that's where you met the person that helped you get into Twilio. I'd like to know, like, how did you get into the company and what type of work did you do over there? Yeah, so I didn't meet the person at school that helped me get into Twilio. But what happened was I worked in a student office, like a student communications office on campus. That was my student job. And I was sort of like a project manager. We, we did a bunch of different things, but we had a, a developer who was a friend of mine now. and. Together, we would, you know, build things that helped us like kind of have games or activities with the students. So during new student orientation, we were like, oh, let's do a, a, a scavenger hunt around the city. We were in downtown Chicago and we we're like, that would be really cool. We should do that via text messages. This was, you know, probably 2009, 2010. And you know, we're like, how do we do that? How do we, how do we build an app that uses text messages? And I was really deep in the tech world. I followed. Hacker News and all the Y Combinator stuff. I followed TechCrunch really closely. So I knew products that were coming out. Also, this was long enough ago that you could know everything that launched. You know, now too many things are built every week. But I remember, like, I think there was this app that, you know, something I saw get funding that you could do text messages on TechCrunch. And I, like, went and searched for it. And I found it was like, Twilio, oh, this thing. And we started playing around with it. And we're like, this is amazing. I can, we can write a little bit of code and make our phone vibrate. We can build this, you know, almost massively multiplayer real world game with a bunch of students running around downtown Chicago doing scavenger hunts and, and all these sort of things. And so that ended up being very cool. We built a bunch of things with Twilio and became a, a customer of it. And at the same time, I was learning to code and doing some design work. And I had an idea and I was like, I want to be able, I, I send myself emails all the time with notes or thoughts or ideas. Uh, I'd rather text those to myself and then organize them. You know, I was a big user of Twitter, so there were hashtags. I want to organize them with a hashtag. So uh, hashtag idea, hashtag um, URL or something to go revisit later. I was like, oh, that's a good project I can use to, to learn to code with. And I started playing with Twilio myself. I was like, this is just incredible. Like as a developer who barely can write code, I can do something magical with my, my phone. And that was really cool. It, you know, it crossed the Rubicon from the web browser into the real world, which is really neat. 
And so I got very obsessed with them. And eventually what happened, I, the whole time I was in university, I was just bored. I kind of felt constrained and I wanted to get out. I applied to Y Combinator a couple of times. I, I tried applying to different companies. And so what I eventually did, I, I said, okay, I want to work for Twilio. Like I got, I got pretty intense about it. And so I pursued them pretty aggressively. And so how did you, how did you pursue them? Actually, did you go on LinkedIn back then and contacted people? Like, how did you got in touch with them? So this is where it gets a little silly, you know, and I, I think more people could do this, but also everybody shouldn't do this. It's a little intense, but ultimately it was like, how do I get their attention? I'm a student. Nobody cares. I looked up to them a lot. And actually when I look back, Jeff, the, the, he just left as CEO last week, but he uh, was the founder and CEO. We were like the same age. I'm the same age now that he was then. And they were probably a similar number of employees, maybe a dozen. But I thought they were so big and I thought I had to get his attention. And there's no way he paid to, pays attention to his email. So I, I, I put a lot of work in. In reality, he probably was paying attention all the time. But I was like, how do I get his attention? I should reach out to his investors. Like his investors will likely refer me because, and, and this is true now as a founder, all of our investors, we have a bunch of angel investors and, and our main VCs. We don't email very much. We don't talk very much, but they so desperately want to help. They just don't know how to be helpful. So if you email them and ask for an introduction and you're like somebody trying to get a job, they're like, yes, I can help. I can make an introduction. So I emailed four of his investors, um, Chris Saka, who's pretty well known, Dave McClure, Albert Winger, who's at Union Square Ventures, and then... Um, Joshua Schachter, who started Delicious. And he, Joshua Schachter is now one of our investors in Arrows, which is wild. But I emailed all of them and asked for an introduction to Jeff. And I emailed Jeff at the same time. So I sent five emails on like a Sunday night. And within like 30 minutes, two of them had emailed him. And then he saw my email and he's like, who the fuck is this kid? He's like, who's, who's coming in and having my investors email? All these emails are coming in. And the next morning, one more had sent. And then a couple of days later, one more. So he basically said, I have to talk to this person. I don't know. We're not really hiring, but I need to, you're doing something. You got my investors all to email you. How did you do that? And um, that's how I got an introduction. And then it took a few months. They raised some more funding. Then they had an opening for me, but that's how I met Jeff, the CEO and co-founder. And we, we kind of kept a rapport after that. That's, that's a crazy story on how to get your first job. It's really unusual, but I really like the drive you had to get into that company and the drive you had to come, you know, and work for a startup. It's, it's incredible. And I'll say one more thing actually about it. I, I built a resume and a, a web page on my site specifically for them. So I put a lot of work in to show that I was specifically interested in Twilio and talked a lot about what I thought I could bring Twilio, what I thought they needed. And I think that's really necessary for a lot of people who are trying to reach out to founders or companies that are earlier stage. They're just so busy, so swamped. Hiring people is actually pretty risky because you they can you don't have any time to train them or help them. Like you kind of need people who are self-sufficient. So I think for Jeff, he recognized that I was somebody who was going to just figure it out. Whatever they needed, I would just show up and figure it out. And I demonstrated that. So that I think that was a thing where Otherwise, I would have been too risky being right out of school. I didn't, I wasn't a programmer. I wasn't anything they needed. But he was like, we need somebody who will just figure stuff out. So that's yeah. how I got in. And did you actually send the code that you've written, um, you know, on top of uh, Twilio to them? Or like, did you keep it for yourself? I emailed it to them 
at some point I showed them, not the code, but I showed them the product, but you know, that was just, that was cool. They thought it was neat that I had, I had built something with it, but it wasn't really the main thing. Yeah, definitely. And can you tell us what you were doing over there? Like you got into the company and then what, what's next? Like, what do you do for them? Yeah. So I started January, 2011, I was employee 23 and I was 21 years old, which was wild to think about. And I, I started in like a product management slash operations role. So I had a couple small products I managed. One of them was uh, the short codes product. So I think it's mainly a US thing, but maybe it's in, uh, you know, in other countries as well. But there's these five or six digit phone numbers that are primarily used for text messaging. And they're like large scale application text messages. And so when you were, you know, Uber or Airbnb or some company sending a large number, thousands and thousands of messages, you know, an hour, you needed to be on these sort of like large scale numbers. Twitter started this way. It was 40404. Like that was how you tweeted by texting that phone number. And so we sold those and I built that product and I think I sold the first hundred of them and I operationalized it and I worked with the phone carriers to get them approved. So it was kind of like all the kind of work around, you know, a couple individual products and then eventually became like a full product manager. So you stayed two years. Uh, why did you decide to quit? Because like one of the things I looked up before we got to the interview is like how much uh, their value today. And, you know, when they went public, they made a quite a bit of money. I'm pretty sure you would have got some uh, stocks if you had stayed. Like, did you, did you regret quitting? Like, so I had a little bit of stock, but I, yeah. So typically in Arrows, our stock is like this, where when you get a grant, it lasts over four years, you know, so you get a little bit of it over that four years. So I left after two years and only got half of it, but I also had gotten a raise. So I got a little bit more. If I had stuck around, I would have had, you know, a decent amount more. And then what happened, I, I also sold some of it earlier, like soon after they went public. So they really grew in value over time. I would have uh, financially made a lot more money if I had stuck around or held on to it. But I've always kind of been somebody who bet on myself a little bit. You know, I was a little bit anxious, a little bit eager. And um, I decided to leave and go work for myself. And I think for me, it was the best choice. Um, I don't know if I would have started Arrows or another company later. I might have stuck around there or jumped to other companies. I was actually very, very close friends with all the early Stripe people, including the founders, and talked to them a little bit about joining there really early. And ultimately, I think at Twilio, I felt like I had hit a ceiling. There were, you know, three or six month periods where I was just like, I felt stuck and I didn't feel like I was working on the stuff I wanted to. And that felt so long. But I think the, you know, Jeff as the founder and all these people were thinking on a, you know, 15 year time scale. Like he worked there for 15 or 16 years when he just left. And I was so eagerly trying to make something happen for me that quarter, that, that year. And if I had stuck around another six months, another year, I, new opportunities would have happened for me. I would have gotten to grow into different roles. I would have gotten to probably lead certain projects on a bigger scale. Um, I, would have, I would have done very well in terms of the skills I could have developed, even though I felt stuck. And I see that now as a founder, I, I can see that desire to make things happen very quickly. And that's both super powerful as a startup, but the sometimes that desire to do something or have something uh, change for you is at odds with what the startup needs. Whereas at a bigger corporation, there's more opportunity everywhere because you know, you're at Microsoft and there's just a, a million projects you can work on with a million different teams. If you had some curiosity, you could probably go pursue it in some corner of the organization. And at a startup, we have to 
be obsessively focused. And so sometimes I think the, what the, co- the person needs and what the company needs are at odds with each other. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting that you have had that short-term mindset when you were younger, because I think now as an entrepreneur, you probably have a longer-term kind of mindset, right? It's it's dramatic. I mean, so I'm 34. Yeah, that's. I had to think for a second. I'm 34, and I started at Twilio when I was 21, and I left when I was 23. And I expected so much to happen in that time. And I and I was in San Francisco where you know, so many startups that were happening, so many founders that were my age, so many people that were doing incredibly well, very young, you know, the, the, it's incredible how many talented people and companies are built by people in their late teens, their twenties. And I really expected a lot of myself in my twenties. And, and I think that created a weird pressure where I wanted and expected things to happen fast or to be obvious. And I think in reality, a lot of that, uh, good stuff comes when you're a little patient. I, I kind of think of that as like long-term patient, short-term impatient. So expect a lot to happen and be very eager to make change and put things to work in the short term, but be patient about seeing the results and be patient about how long the process takes. And I think starting a company, so we're over four years into Arrows as a customer onboarding tool. There was a whole year before that, a fifth year where we were building something else, other things that didn't work. And even now I sit here and I go like, oh, we have 10 more years at least to be successful, like truly successful. Like the vision is so much bigger, you know? Yeah. I think it's Bill Gates that says people overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And I think that's really talks to being an entrepreneur. Uh, but actually, so let's start to talk about Arrows, um, which is going to be the next section of this uh, episode, which is really going to be focused on the company itself. So you start Arrows in 2020 or was it a year before actually? Because you said you had a year's with nothing. Yeah, I think uh, on LinkedIn or wherever, we probably have different dates. Um, We started in January, 2019, technically in fall, like 2018, we started like thinking about something. I think we bought the web domain, arrows.to in the fall of 2018. I designed the logo and things like that, that winter. And then in January is when we started working on it pretty in earnest, but it was a different tool. So today we're a collaborative customer onboarding tool, and we also only focus on HubSpot today. You have to use HubSpot to use arrows. None of that was true. We weren't an onboarding tool and we weren't doing anything with HubSpot then. Um, We were building like tooling from my days at Twilio. I worked on a lot of internal tools at Twilio. I liked serving my other team members. So, you know. I think there's a lot of teams at companies that are underserved by their product or engineering teams, and they are very core teams to the success of the company and their core teams to the revenue or the bottom line. And so we were looking for tools that we could build for those sort of people. And we tried a couple of ideas based on things I had done at Twilio in-house and none of them really worked. People weren't really interested in them, but what we've found was that the customer success teams that we talked to were at least intrigued, even though they never purchased them or didn't want to use them. They were like, they resonated with the ideas more. So that's how we ended up focusing on customer success teams. And what was the original idea before this tool? Gosh, I mean, we, we kind of did a few in that period. And the idea was that when you're building a business or doing any sort of like growth work, most things are repeatable processes. So if you're doing cold email outreach, 
you just need to reach out to these 20 people every day. Or uh, if you're blogging, you need to write a blog post every week. So we were trying to build some sort of like automated, semi-automated, but human in the loop process tool that helps you kind of do email outreach at first with the idea that it would help you with a lot of processes. And honestly, it was just, it wasn't really a tool for a specific user, specific person. We were building something that I had as a individual, uh, you know, entrepreneur problem and just not a great market to build for. So, you know, looking back at, I kind of find it funny that we tried that, but wasn't a good idea. Yeah. So then you transition to what it is today. Actually, I'm curious on the name Arrows. Like why this name? Where did it came from? Uh, Benedict, my co-founder and I are, are big Formula One fans. And when I was looking around for names, I, I started looking for inspiration in like Formula One terms and Formula One history, uh, different names, team names, people, et cetera, just kind of digging around, I think Wikipedia or other places. And I came across a team that was called Arrows and they ended in the early 2000s, I think. And I didn't, I wasn't a fan back then, so I didn't know them. But I was like, oh, Arrows, that's an interesting name. And I always like names like that, that, that sound a little off, you know, like th there aren't many company names that are plural, you know, it's, um, it, it kind of sounded in motion, which, you know, is similar to like Formula One or something, but it was in motion. And then because we're like this process tool and like something where we're trying to give you a guide, you know, to a better outcome, the idea of like arrows pointing in a direction was nice, but we are also very careful not to, we don't want to lean on the name in terms of like making it feel cheesy. So like if we were cheesy, we would use arrows, like the object, you know, and everywhere and point at stuff. And then we don't do that. It's just, it's like a name that has like a feeling to it. Yeah. It makes sense. I actually really like the name. I think it sounds really good and like, it looks good. It sounds good. It's a, it's a pretty nice uh, name. Um, you just mentioned just before, actually, you have a, a co-founder as well. I was actually, uh, I wanted to ask you that because um, I think it's really different to be a solo entrepreneur kind of thing versus like co-founding a company. Um, so what's the role of your co-founder? Like, what, what, how do you split up the task and, you know, with the tech brain, with the business person, do you have these two? <laughs> yeah, we both, we're, we're kind of both 70% own our own thing and then kind of 30% think about the other stuff. So he runs product and engineering. Uh, we actually have a CTO that, uh, that leads engineering, but Benedict, my co-founder runs product and used to lead engineering. And he's much more of um, the technical side of the company. And I'm much more of the business sales growth partnership side. And, um, but we both overlap pretty heavily on, on each other's side. So we really engage on what the other person's doing. We talk about it a lot. And, you know, I was a product manager. I helped build a lot of the first version of Vero. So I was very deeply involved in like the product side, but as we grew and added team members, I just, you know, I, I haven't touched our code base in like two years. It's, it's really kind of become something I more have opinions about than anything I'm directing. And did you guys were friends before? Yeah, we met in Chicago about 10 years ago. Uh, we knew each other on Twitter first, actually. I know a lot of people in real life based on my friendships on Twitter. And he and I met each other then. He was doing uh, indie game development and iOS development in Chicago. And I had just moved back after I left Twilio. I moved back to Chicago from San Francisco. And I was like, oh, this guy seems cool. We should meet up. And so we messaged about meeting up and we realized we lived two blocks away from each other. And we got a beer and we were like, wow, we get along really well. And so we became very fast friends. And over the years, I went and built 
my own little design studio and was doing client work and trying to build my own apps. And he was doing game development and launched a couple games. And both of us hit a point where we were kind of burnt out, but we felt like we still had a chip on our shoulders. Like we, we think we could do something still. Like we have energy to go one more time, you know, before we go try to get jobs or something. And so that was probably 2018. And that's when we decided to start working together. And um, I had a client that he partnered with me on. So we had some money coming in from a, a client that we were building an app for. And uh, we kind of used that as a chance to test out working together in a formal way. You know, so we're friends, but like, how does it work out when we're in a tense, like negotiation with a client or when the, there's a deadline coming and it all went really well. So then we just kind of kept doing arrows. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, okay, so let's just go back to the company itself right now, because like I think we've covered a bit the origin of the company. But for someone that is not familiar with what a CRM is, what you guys are doing on top of a CRM solution, like can you explain it in super simple terms? So a CRM typically is for companies that are managing their contacts, usually marketing or sales contacts, customer service contacts. And then there's functionality built on top of it. So for example, with HubSpot, they have marketing, sales, and customer service all in one platform and the shared like database of the contacts. So the CRM is the, like the contact database and all the metadata and event data and everything associated with them. So if I go looked at um, my own record in our CRM, it would show what forms I filled out, you know, which emails have been sent back and forth to me, any deals or opportunities I'm, I'm pursuing if I'm trying to buy the product. Um, which emails I'm subscribed to, et cetera, et cetera. And so Arrows really fits in as an extension to the CRM because we're this onboarding tool. It's really the collaborative part that we focus on. So the tasks that you send and kind of collaborate with your customer on, that's like an external action. You know, it's a thing that I need this customer to do these tasks and I have these tasks I'm going to do also, but really I'm, I'm doing it based on activity in the CRM. So that's why we focused on integrating so deeply with with the CRM of our customers, because for them, it's like, I closed this new deal. Now I need to onboard them. So that, that kind of starting point, the starting line happens in the sales CRM and then triggers the outward, you know, arrows plan after that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Actually. I think it's a uh, CRM are mostly focused for what I've seen so far in my career on like pre-sales and trying to manage the opportunities that you have with the clients and everything but really much less on the post sales where you have to do the integration and uh, you know, just uh, lend the product with the customer. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, going on to the history of the company. So from January, 2020 or January, 2019, depending on what we consider until June, 2021, you actually bootstrapped the company, which actually means that you didn't raise money for that time. I was actually wondering, did you, guys invested in the company yourself? Did you have revenue coming in from clients right away that you could use to fund your operation? Like, how did it go? Yeah, so from that period of time, we basically were doing client work where we're building apps and things for other clients and using that money to fund working on Arrows. And then after a little while, we um, built Arrows up and started charging customers, but really we made very little money. I mean, a thousand or $2,000 a month, very little. And you know, so we weren't paying ourselves at all. We were paying ourselves entirely from our client work. And we hit a point in March, 2021, we launched on Product Hunt and we were like, 
great, we have this product. People seem to be buying it. It seems interesting. The, the idea makes a lot of sense to us. We have a nice landing page. Let's go launch it and try to get more customers now. And if we launch it and we do, we've been doing marketing stuff, we've been creating content. We think we can, you know, start to grow a little bit each month and, and get to break even and, and fully bootstrap it. And then we launched and got like one or two customers, but mostly nobody cared. And then we did a bunch of demos from that. Like we started talking to people, like a lot of people scheduled demos and there was a lot of skepticism. A lot of companies didn't want to buy something that was so critical to their like customer relationship. It was like critical data, critical relationship stuff that they just couldn't risk having it be with like two small people who they couldn't, honestly, we couldn't build everything they wanted. So they also had higher expectations of what we could provide. And that's what, you know, March, April that year in 2021 is when we realized we were probably in a category, a product category that needed funding. And so like kind of a light bulb moment happened for us where we started analyzing like what made a good bootstrap company versus a VC funded company. And so what we found is that the, the companies that were bootstrapped that had done well, almost were building in gigantic categories that were already well-formed where there were big competitors. So ConvertKit is a great example. They're an email marketing tool for like bloggers and creators. They launched as a comparison point to MailChimp. MailChimp was gigantic which was also bootstrapped, but started earlier when they could grow, you know, over a longer period of time, but there was constant contact and other email marketing tools. So the, we found that the, like these bootstrap tools could find their niche from all the people that were buying and bouncing off of MailChimp every month. So think of how many companies cancel MailChimp every month, thousands or something probably cancel MailChimp every month. And in our category, we looked around and we go, oh, not, there's no big company yet. There's no, like, people don't even really know what to call this. We're calling it onboarding, but is that what the industry is going to call it? Or how many people are in market every month trying to buy this sort of tool? And we just kind of asked all these questions. So we realized that for new categories that are being formed, people typically had to raise funding to buy time, to time the market, to build what the customers uh, didn't even know what they wanted yet. You know, you couldn't go copy the features that a bigger product had because there was no bigger product. So we had to go figure out even what customers wanted. We had to figure out what marketing and growth looked like. We had to pivot, you know, once in there. And so that's why we decided like, okay, well, this needs funding. We wanted to bootstrap it, but the, it, it wasn't really our choice anymore. It was like the, the thing we were building, if we wanted to continue doing it, needed funding. So at the time, it's only the two, two of you trying to figure out what the market could look like, like no employees, no offices, you guys just working from your home, I guess. Yeah, we're all remote still. I, I rent an office down the street, but everybody else works from home. And uh, yeah, we were just the two of us working from home and we'd get on Zoom and talk to people and we'd get a customer here and there and people really liked it, but like we couldn't get, you know, hundreds of customers. There was just, there wasn't, there wasn't enough people out there who even knew that they needed this sort of tool yet. So I actually think of Arrows today being very similar to like e-signature tools in maybe 2006, seven, eight. In that era, like I was going to university and like, you know, you sign something and they'd send you a PDF and you'd print it out and you need a wet signature and then you scan it back in. It was this whole tedious process. And at some point these like e-signature tools started showing up and you felt like, is this normal? Is this legal? Like, what, is, does this count? I'm not even signing it. How does this work? 
And then after a couple of years, you just started ignoring that. And you realized like if somebody asked you to print out something and sign it again, you would think they were old school and like, you didn't trust that even, oh, I'm sending this to you. Like, and as an image again, that I scanned in, that's weird. And, you know, I think that behavior change happens sometimes when something just makes sense and is obviously better, but it still takes some time. And so that's, what's been true for arrows. We're four or so years in, and we can feel it every six months or so. The market just gets a little bit bigger, a little bit better, more mature. People are starting to look for this sort of tool. The more people that use them with their customers, those customers start to expect that of the other tools or vendors they use. And it just starts to like kind of build momentum. And so being able to stay in business longer is like actually what helps us a lot is by being a good tool, but just being able to stick around. Yeah. And I like that because you had few customers, not a lot of money coming in from the customers, but actually you really believed that there was a great idea behind it. And that's where in June, 2021, you raise almost $3 million in a seed round, um, which is led by Gradient Ventures, but joined by really famous angel investors, actually, like Justin Ward, for example, the CEO of Spoot Social. So what's your relationship like at that time with investors? Because I'm trying to, you know, put myself in the shoes of an investor. And I'm like, I've got these two guys. They've got a product. It's, you know, bringing $2,000 roughly per month, which is not a lot, but equally there is a market potentially for it, which is maybe not mature enough so that it can adapt the product. How, do you, how did you manage to raise that amount of money back then? So one thing we did early on in the company, even before we were doing an onboarding tool, we sent a regular every month or two email update to like friends of ours. We kind of called it the Friends of Arrows email list. It's still what our investor update is called, Friends of Arrows. And there were other entrepreneurs that we knew, founders that we knew, people that worked at startups. And we added a bunch of them early on and we just said, hey, we're starting this email list. Let us know if you want to get taken off, but here, we're going to email you just the stuff we're doing every month. And we kind of thought of it as an investor update without having investors. Like how do we create um, accountability for ourselves? How do we say what we're going to do each month? How do we follow through on that? How do we report what we learned? So oh, we were going to do this this month. And then two months later, we'd email and we go, that didn't work and here's why, you know. And a lot of those people on that list were people that ended up investing later. So friends of ours, so the chief digital officer of the Obama Foundation, Barack Obama's uh, nonprofit, like he was somebody I worked with as a client and he was on this list. Um, I think Justin Howard from Sprout Social was on this list. I knew him from Chicago when he was first starting uh, Sprout Social in 2010. We both had, meetups and we would go to each other meet each other's meetups and i think uh jeff lawson from twilio was on this list a lot of these people were on this list and most people didn't reply but some did and it was really helpful but we kind of built that muscle of here's what we intend to do here's what we would like to learn and then following up on it and so when we went to go raise funding we had this uh history this log of things we tried and things we've done and we chatted with other VCs. VCs came and knocked on our doors. Um, they were interested in the category that we were building in. There were other tools getting funded. So there was interest already. And we were doing well. We were two guys, but we were, our brand was out there. Our marketing was working. And so I think people were just intrigued. Like these guys seem like they'll figure it out. And what really helped though, when we actually reached out to people was really like being able to point and say, look, we, we have this track record of like, trying stuff and learning and iterating and, and moving forward. 
And at the earliest stages of a company, seed stage funding, that's really, I think, what a lot of people are looking for. Yeah, I had, I had one guy in the podcast that said, like, uh, people are not funding your product when you're a seed stage company. They actually fund the funders and they fund the belief that you're going to be able to figure it out. That's the only thing they base their judgment on. What's so interesting about that, though, is that's totally true. But you can't really acknowledge it when you're fundraising. That's what's really annoying about fundraising is everybody kind of wants to, I don't know, not lie to each other, but it feels that way where they're not totally honest that like most likely what we do one month after you give us millions of dollars is change our direction a little bit. But if we told you that you would, there's like this disbelief that people are living in. And what happened is we've changed our direction a little bit over time. And do you feel like you've been completely honest? at this time? I think we've been very honest, but I think when you go raise funding, like when you're in the actual fundraising mode, you don't acknowledge the fact as much that it might change over time. You have to be like, here's the vision of what we're doing. And right now, I mean, frankly, we fully believe everything, our vision of the company, but we also are flexible and understand if there's data telling us to go a different direction, we would do that. But you can't, you can't really lay that out in that way because people they want to buy in on your vision of like, it's going to go like this. And then at this point, we're going to do this. And at this point, we're going to do this. And I know, well, actually, at each of those points, there's probably four directions we could go. And we'll figure out which one's the best direction at the time when we have the data we have, right? But you can't really say it like that. Otherwise, no one's going to buy it. Yeah, they're like, oh, you don't sound confident. <laughs> it's like, no, no, I'm very confident that we will figure it out. It'll be fine. No, that's interesting. I love I love the mindset. Um, so since 2021, I don't think I've seen any fundraising anymore for ours. We did actually. So we 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 kind of talked about it, but it, it might not have been listed as obviously we. So we raised 2.8 million in 2021 with Gradient Ventures and those angels you mentioned, and then in January 2023, so last year, we uh. Took more funding from Gradient Ventures, but also HubSpot Ventures. So HubSpot invested in us because we started focusing on their platform and they really liked what we were doing and we built a relationship with them. So we we took more funding from them, more funding from Gradient, and then a couple of smaller firms jumped in too. Interesting. That's a good segue into the next section, which is your relationship actually with HubSpot because HubSpot is like a, a big company, 30 billion on the market. So it's um, you know kind of a, a massive tech company. And you guys are building, I think, a small extension of their product. Um, I wanted to understand like what the relationship looks like with them because the thing I'm thinking about is if I were you, I would be scared that they would replicate the same product because they have so much resources anyway that they could have, you know, 20 people working on it for like 12 months and then they would have the same features, right? So like what's your relationship with them? Yeah, so well, don't call it a small add-on. It's a very, we're a very big, very great add-on. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But we, so HubSpot's 7,000 people. They're over 2 billion in revenue every year. They have about 200,000 customers. And you start thinking about that and you go, they have a bunch of different products. They have a sales product. They have a marketing product. They have a customer service product. They have an operations like data product. They have a CMS product. Inside each of those products are a bunch of features, like inside the sales tool, there's like a meeting scheduler, like Calendly, there's a, a quoting tool like PandaDoc, you know, there's all these features and things. And you dig in and you go, all right, are these all fully built out? Like, is their meeting tool as functionally built out as Calendly or Chili Piper? No. 
uh, Aircall, gigantic French success story. Aircall is a big partner with HubSpot. They have a lot of success together. They're, they work very close, closely together, just like Eros does with them. Um, but with Aircall, all of their features, like phone calling, all the stuff, HubSpot has phone calling. They have a 50-person team or so working on phone calls and, and the calling infrastructure. And it is not as good or as built out or as mature as Aircall because it's like the one thing that they obsess over. And so what actually happens, it, it's a very, um, it's a thing that, that makes sense. A lot of people wonder this question. Why won't HubSpot just do this? And frankly, we expect someday they will want to do what we are doing. But the reality is we know all the people who would evaluate it. We know all the people. We have very close relationships with the product teams. We have very close relationships with the business development teams. It's a 7,000-person company. There's a lot of competing priorities, a lot of competing teams that have different goals. And so things actually end up moving slower, much, much slower than a startup can. So a 20-person team, a 50-person team working for one year, one, actually, they probably wouldn't apply that many people. They'd put like a three or four-person team on it because it wouldn't be obvious to them that it's a big, necessary thing. If it was a really, really big necessary thing, they'll come knock on our door and say like, hey, we need a partner somehow. And in reality, they just like can't build as much as quickly because there's so much like other stuff going on. They're not building in isolation in a brand new code base. They're building in a very big older code base that has to integrate with a bunch of stuff. And there's a certain expectation when you build a new feature at HubSpot or any company of that size. So what we've found is you know, the thing that we're doing, if you think back to that e-signature like thing, it's still early. So they and platforms like them are very interested and excited about partnering with somebody like Eros because they go, well, our customers need this. A lot of customers need this, but it's not something we can build. We can't build everything. We can't build everything to the degree our customers need. And even then, we're not actually sure how big of a market this is yet. You know, 2 billion in revenue, five or 600 million of that is their sales tool. Like, they would need to feel confident that the arrows could add like a hundred million or 200 million in new revenue very quickly. Right. And it's just not true that like, that's obvious yet. It's not obvious. So we have time before they will feel that they are missing that functionality in the core product. And we hope to prove that the market's big enough that they should want to. But then at that point, like we'll have a lot of, like it will actually be mutually beneficial because most likely they'll build a lightweight version that will expose a lot of people to using that. And then they'll go, hmm, I want more features. I want more functionality. How do I do that? Oh, I should upgrade and add the arrows add-on on. You know, it's like having, I don't know, the stock app or the calendar app on your iPhone and then going, oh, I want a more powerful one. And you go buy a different one later. You don't expect everything out of the box. Yeah. And by the time they would do that, you guys would already have like a really strong products and strong customer base and you would be kind of secure actually. <laughs> yeah. And in reality, what we've done, the thing that people don't know and we don't talk about is we've built an incredibly, incredibly close relationship. People think that, you know, when HubSpot or a company like that invests in you, that you talk all the time or that brings you close, it really doesn't do a lot. Like they, they get our investor updates. They, they know how we're doing. We have a formal relationship. But actually, uh, like a great partnership actually comes from building one-on-one -on -one human relationships across the entire org. And we've done that for the last two years, a lot of it. And so we, we work very closely with them because we have like a shared story of when Arrows succeed, this is why HubSpot succeeds. You know, and Arrows provides this value to the HubSpot platform. 
into HubSpot customers. And everybody there has bought in on that and go, wow, yes, that makes sense. And so for us to eventually get to that point where they're competing with us, like we would get a heads up because we've built such a close relationship. Yeah. And actually it makes sense because you are in a win-win situation because your product will not sell as a standalone product, right? Like it will never, because like it wouldn't make any sense. Why would you need that if you don't have us put then? They understand this. We, we would like to move to Salesforce and other CRMs. Like we'll use, we'll integrate with Dynamics or something someday. And they want that for us because they want us to grow and succeed in the same way that AirCall or the PandaDoc, these other big successes that work with them also have grown and have a bunch of integrations. We made a strategic choice that HubSpot was a, a well-timed opportunity for us and is like something where our product could fit very well. But if you think about Shopify or these other platforms, like Klaviyo and these other apps have jumped onto their platform early on and grown very, very quickly over time. HubSpot needs that sort of story as much as they need, you know, an onboarding tool. They need companies to show that like you can build a successful software company focused on their platform. And so we're trying to do that with them. Yeah. And I also want to emphasize that for people that are not working in a tech company, the onboarding of a tech, new tech tool in a company takes time. Like onboarding people on a tool, it takes time and effort. It takes willingness from customers to actually implement the tool and everything. Like, I don't think people really realize how much of a struggle it is. And I'm sure some companies sit on a lot of licenses from whatever products that they're not using because they didn't took enough time to actually implement the product and use it. So I think I just want to emphasize on that. But um, going back to Arrows, what what's the story now? Do you still make 2000 a month? I, I don't think so, right? Like, do you have any numbers you can share or not? Um, no revenue numbers. We're doing very well. We're nine people now, so today, uh, in January, 2024, our ninth person started, but we've tried to stay very lean. So, you know, we've got plenty of money in the bank. We're growing very well. We, we have like a great few years, you know, coming, but we've tried to keep the team lean because honestly, we just think that th the thing that helps us grow the best is to be, um, efficient and lean with our resources and very, very focused. And so, you know, there's different points in time, even when we first raised that funding where we weren't sure what Eros was going to be as it grew up, you know, what did the market need? What do people want? Are we going to be a customer success platform, et cetera? And we now realize and, and have more confidence that like an onboarding tool as we've built today, built in and integrated with uh, CRMs can be very, very big. And we have some ideas for other tools that are adjacent to the onboarding that that would make a lot of sense and would help it grow even further. But we have a lot more confidence now that like the path we've chosen, focusing on HubSpot in the near term, focusing on as an onboarding tool that's, you know, helps people take their deals from closed one to successful. There's a lot of room that we can take this, you know, a lot more time, that, you know, a lot more um, growth in just that narrow idea than we thought even two years ago, let alone, you know, further. So, we are still investing, you know, kind of using our venture capital to grow. You know, there's a suggestion of numbers for you that we have nine people. We're still, you know, we're not profitable yet, but we are, uh, we could achieve that if we wanted. And so, you know, we're, we're feeling very good about where we're at. That's, that's pretty cool. So what do you see yourself in five years? Um, five years is a funny time because it could be so many different things. I have a much stronger feeling of where I want it to be probably in 10, but over time, what you'll see us do in that five years is 
we'll add other products adjacent to just being onboarding. Like, you know, we think of arrows as the collaborative layer between you and your customer uh, to help you, you know, kind of achieve different milestones throughout the customer journey. So if your CRM helps you move, like, you know, manage your internal tooling and internal process for marketing and sales and customer service, can arrows be that layer on top that helps you collaborate with the customer through marketing and sales and renewal processes and, and, you know, upgrades and all that. So you'll see us build the kind of adjacent products and you'll also see us move to other platforms. So we'll integrate with Salesforce, maybe many more, and you'll see us kind of build out our, our partner motion across those different platforms. So not only those platforms themselves, but the app partners that are building on them, like how do we partner with Reveal and Aircall to mention two French companies? Um, how do we partner with them to find shared customers? How do we partner with the platforms? How do we partner with the solutions providers, the, the systems integrators that, that sell services on top of these platforms? How do we help work with them to make their customers successful? And, and then really just keep growing from there. I think there's, you know, I think there's just so much opportunity for this market, this category to develop and for people in the, you know, that use a CRM to recognize that there's a missing component to how they use it. And so a lot of what we're going to be doing is just trying to like create a, a, a chorus of people saying like, wow, there's a better way you should go look at this sort of tool. And, and that in five years, if we've done that, you'll see us be a much bigger company than we are now. Yeah. I'm curious to see how that's going to go. I'm, I'm going to follow closely because I think it's a, uh... It's interesting. I also have the feeling that it's a super big market because like a CRM is basically in any companies. You can look at the numbers Salesforce are doing per year as like revenue. It's crazy big. Um, it's a billions of dollars each year. So like even if you capture, you know, a smaller part of the market, then you're probably going to be uh, doing really great. So one last section before we wrap up this session, actually, I wanted to just have your advice for anyone that aspire to be an entrepreneur later in his career or like, you know, it could be like if you're going back to yourself when you were like 21 years old, going out of university, you didn't know what to do. Uh, what would you have said to that person or, or otherwise you are working for a tech company and you're a product manager and then all of a sudden you want to start a company. What's the advice you would give to that person? I probably have two things in my mind. One is, um, being patient, you know, I think that short-term impatience, long-term patient idea, like expect yourself to grow and learn very quickly, expect yourself to try a lot of things very quickly, but be very patient about the, the results coming. Uh, you know, it's, I, I'm on a bit of a health kick right now. And, you know, you think about like getting fit, you have to do a lot of things every day, but you don't see the results for a long time. And. And that's very true of, I think, careers and building companies and all that. You have to, you know, th it's really about continuing, you know, just continue to go and figure it out and push through. Um, on the other side, I think when evaluating what to go build, if you've decided, oh, I, I'd like to go be an entrepreneur, I'd like to go build a company. The thing that we, it took a long time for us to figure out was how to evaluate a market, how to evaluate an opportunity how to know if people actually wanted to buy this. And I think people don't spend enough time understanding that, you know, how many companies are actually in market looking for this sort of tool every month? Do they have an understanding of what the tool is called? 
Um, are they Googling it? You know, are they asking their colleagues that work in similar roles at other companies? Like, what do you use for X, Y, Z? And are they, you know, willing to spend money on that if they even are doing that? Is it a top, you know, two or three priority? And, you know, you have to, you have to get really, really honest. Like onboarding was a, an idea that made a lot of sense when we started, but it wasn't something that a lot of people were looking for. And even still, not that many people are looking for it. It is a great market to be in. We're very happy. But if we like went back early on, we were naive, I think, in how we evaluated the market. And we've uh, gotten a lot more mature about that and a lot more focused. But there's, there's a lot that goes into evaluating whether something's a very good idea and something worth pursuing. And I think recognizing if, if you're VC funded or bootstrapping, what the strengths are, the trade-offs between the type of market or the type of customer you go serve. Yeah. And you know what, actually like 20 years from now, I'm not sure anyone would have said I need a CRM because I don't even think it existed back then. So, you know, it's just like building a market takes time, takes effort and people are probably not searching for onboarding that much these days, or maybe they are uh, quite a bit, but like it's probably going to come more and more. And I think it makes just a lot of sense with the world going more and more digital as well. Right. Like it's a, it could be onboarding about CRM, but like it could be onboarding about actually any products. Like there is a lot of products you can onboard. So it's funny though. Twenty years ago is when Salesforce went public. So maybe they started like twenty five years ago, maybe thirty years ago. But yes, you're right. Like these markets, they develop and they change. And then being, if you're trying to bootstrap something, don't try to be the leader in a new market. You know, go play in a big market that already exists. If you want to build something new in a new market, that's great. But understand it takes time. You know, it might take a few years for people really, and it takes a certain type of, um, you know, luck where like you have to hope people kind of change their behavior over time. But it might bring the biggest results as well. So it might. Yeah, we'll see. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. I appreciate it. I learned so much about uh, entrepreneurship in general, but like also onboarding and your story. I think it's fascinating. Do you have any last word actually for the audience? No, I, I mean, this has just been so fun. Thank you for asking. Uh, me to join and I'm just uh, you know it's been a very interesting journey so far from Twilio to uh, my consulting stuff to Arrows now and um, I appreciate people being interested super thanks a lot well for listeners check out Daniel and Arrows on LinkedIn uh, if you have a CRM and want to onboard people faster and more successfully then you can definitely check the products uh, otherwise you can also follow Explore and give it five stars thank you so much Daniel Thank you. Thank you, Hugo.